So Genesis chapter 41. The life of Joseph seems to be one that's always marked by time spent on the sidelines. If he was a football player, he would be a four-string quarterback. If he was a baseball player, he would be a bench warmer. If he was a Hollywood stunt double, he would have been the stunt double for Tom Cruise, who does all his own stunts. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. This whole final section of the book of Genesis began back in chapter 37. And this section of scripture focuses in on this man, Joseph. And when we're first introduced to Joseph back in chapter 37, he's 17 years old. He's his father's favorite. He's got a snazzy outfit that befits the authority that's been bestowed on him by his dad. And he's given dreams by God concerning the life that he was going to have. Dreams of grandeur, of wealth, of prominence. Dreams that he was so absolutely sure would come to pass that he told his parents, his dad, and his brothers about them. And by the end of that chapter, God has already begun the process of refining those dreams. And by the end of that opening chapter, he has been physically assaulted. He's had his life ripped from his hands, almost assassinated, and then sold as a slave for the rest of his life. This wasn't a test. This was not temporary. This was his life for the rest of his life. And in chapter 39, we found him in his new home in Egypt, sold as a slave to Potiphar. But as we're told multiple times there, Yahweh was with him, and for this reason he flourished in the house of Potiphar. God gave him lemons, so he made lemonade. His life, though, could not be very fulfilling for him. And yet he persevered, and more than that, he flourished. He held on to God, the promises of God, and he persevered. And after a while, he must have gotten used to the dailiness of that new life, gotten used to this being the life that God had given to him. And maybe even thought at that moment, I got this down. I, I, I have this walking with the Lord thing down. But Potiphar had a wife who lied about Joseph and by accusing him of attempted rape, which then brought about another new location for Joseph, from the house of the bodyguard to the jail that he was in charge of. And once again, because Yahweh was with Joseph, he flourished there. And after an extended amount of time there, Joseph had two new guests to the jail that he was in charge of, the baker and the cupbearer. And they were given dreams. When Joseph came to them that fateful morning and saw their dejected faces and asked them, What gives? And then heard that they had been given a dream. He must have at that moment remembered. He must have thought, I had a dream once. And then Joseph, in absolute confidence, told them the meaning of their dreams. But he wasn't confident in himself. 
He wasn't confident even in the dreams either. He was confident in the Lord that had given these men these dreams. And that his understanding of what they meant, that that would happen. And again, think about this. This is the same man who had been given dreams himself. Dreams that he had believed so much was going to happen that he faithfully recounted them to his brothers and to his father. Dreams that at that moment were impossible. Seemed like they were never going to happen. While he was still back in Canaan, while he was a free man, they were possible then. But now, after all these years, in my current situation, those dreams are impossible. And yet, while others may say it's delusional of him, despite his situation, despite the dreams that he had been given, which were impossible, he still held to the reality, the absolute reality of God and not determining if God was good based upon his performance in making my dreams, the dreams of Joseph as he determined how they should come to pass, whether or not he was good because of that or not. Joseph trusted in the Lord and not in the dreams of the Lord, knowing that the Lord is good no matter what the situation is. So he related the meaning of the dreams to the cupbearer and the baker, and he did it with absolute authority and assurance. Again, not in himself, not in his inability to be able to speak well, to carry on a conversation, or in the assurance that comes from a life of success and ease, but with absolute confidence in the God of his salvation. Joseph spoke truth to these men, to one God had given salvation from Pharaoh's wrath, and to the other he had not. To the one that was granted salvation, as we are told in Romans 8, 28, that salvation was granted him to that man, not for his benefit, but for the predestined, predetermined will of God in the life of Joseph. The dreams given both the cupbearer and the baker were just like the dreams that were given to Joseph. They were all impossible. All of them in that moment, for those men being set free from that current situation, was an impossibility. But once the cupbearer and the baker showed up, told Joseph of those dreams, dreams which, because of the divine intervention, Joseph knew that the meaning of them, when that happened, he must have hoped in being set free once again, hoped in being set free once the cupbearer was released. He must have thought, man, this man is going to be so joyous over being set free, just as I have told him he was going to happen, that he would do everything he could to set me free. He must have hoped, and even if that man forgets me, God won't. He must have looked at these events, God working in and through him in the dreams of those men as the beginning of the end of his time in prison. And it was. And then we're brought to our opening verses of our chapter today, verses 1 through 8. 
Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And behold, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the reeds. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and thin, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and thin cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. And he again fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came on a single stalk, plump and good. And behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it happened that it was that in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and to its wise men. And Pharaoh recounted to them his dream. But there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And once again, God proves that he works in the lives of those that are not of him. He gives this man, who claims to be a God himself, a dream that this self-determined God can't interpret. And the dream itself, that's not the important thing found within these first eight verses. That God gave him this dream, that's much more important than what the dream is itself. But what is truly important, what God truly wants us to understand here, the thing that the Lord desires us to ponder, to think through, that's found in verse 1. You see, if Joseph had placed his hope in people, he would have given up a long time ago. He may have hoped for a time that his brothers would see the error of their ways. Maybe that's why they didn't kill him straight away. And then when they lowered the rope to pull him up out of the pit, maybe he thought, there must be remorseful. Maybe this was just a prank. Maybe it was just a bad practical joke. He, he may have hoped that they would have felt remorse later and come to track him down and purchase him back out of his slavery. He may have hoped that in doing a really good job for Potiphar, that he would set me free. He may have hoped that the Lord would use the cupbearer to bring about his salvation from the prison that he found himself in. And if he had hoped in any of those things or those people, his hopes would have been dashed long ago. He had been 17 years old when his life was changed on that faithful day when his father sent him to go check on his brothers. He's now 30. He's been a slave for almost half of his life. Those dreams that he had been given, the dreams of grandeur, that probably happened more than half his life ago. Dreams that must have seemed completely impossible. Maybe dreams that he had completely forgotten about, dismissed them maybe as, man, maybe I just ate too much pizza too late that night. Maybe that was the reason I had those dreams. And remember, the opening verses of our chapter today all happened completely outside of his knowledge. The night that, Pot, that Pharaoh was given these dreams was just another night for Joseph. He had no idea, no clue of the impossibility that would happen the very next day in his life. He woke up that faithful day as he did every other day, went about his business, doing his master's business. And from all accounts, he did it 
with integrity, with faithfulness, and even with joy. And the question we should be asking ourselves is, how? How was he able to do this? You see, this is something that we need to consider for our own lives, for our own walk with the Lord. Because Joseph and the life that he has been given, that's not an anomaly. This is life with the Lord. This is the reality we see in the life of Moses, Daniel, in the life of Paul. We, this is the reality we see in the lives of those Christians that, we, that lived through the persecution of the Roman Catholics, the saints who lived through the reign of the Nazis, the saints who now currently live in closed countries, in China, in North Korea, in Iran, and in countries that are not so closed, like Canada, and even here in the United States. You see, we don't have to suffer persecution to identify, to identify with Joseph, because he was never persecuted for his faith. Those around him couldn't care less about what he believed, or about the God that he served. They just expected him to get up every day and serve them which is what he did. But the answer as to how he was able to do this, how he was able to live and work and thrive in what we would consider a really bad situation and a hostile work environment. The answer as to how he was able to do this, how all those saints were able to, and even how these saints now currently are able to, all found in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Grab your Bibles. We're heading over to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not forget my law. But let your heart guard my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let loving kindness and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good insight in the eyes of God and man. Saints, this isn't a Ponzi scheme. They shouldn't, this shouldn't be viewed as a get-rich-quick formula. This is not the stuff of Amway or, or of any pyramid scheme. For us, for the redeemed, this is supposed to be our life. Solomon is telling us truth here. That the commands of God, the word of God, that this, they are our length of days. And this is our peace. They are God's loving kindness and his truth. And we, we are responsible for how we handle them. And I'm not talking about, nor was Solomon talking about how you take care of that book, that Bible that you own. What he is telling us is that since we have been given these truths, and this is important, that you and I are supposed to realize how important this truth is, that this book, the Word of God, this book is not given for all men. 
It's available for all men. All men can read it. And all men will benefit from the wisdom and the morality found within it. But it is only for the elect of God, the redeemed of the Lord, the joy that is set before Christ that this word is truly given to. This, dear saints, is a love letter from a groom to his bride, the church. He gives us himself, the word, and then he gives us his spirit to illuminate and empower us through the illumination of his word. And this is what is called living quorum Deo, in the presence of God. We think that that, living quorum Deo, is just some out there thing that you do spiritually when you contemplate the near navel. Living quorum Deo is living with the word in you and mastering you. And then Solomon continues writing through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and he tells us, he tells us how Joseph was able to live quorum Deo. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. This is what Joseph hoped in. This is what he trusted in. But we need to make sure that we're clear about what the Lord is saying here. He doesn't say, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make your life easy or filled with money. He will make your, your path straight. Being of the family of the Lord, it does have great benefits here on earth and for all eternity. It truly does. But an easy, swanky life is not one of them. Christ himself told us this truth in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, there he tells us, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them, he may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the rivers came, and the winds blew and fell against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them, may be compared to a foolish man who built this house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Most of us know this parable, but I'm not sure if you've ever actually thought through what Jesus was saying here. You see, the same rain fell on both houses, the same river rose against both houses. The same wind blew against both houses. But it was the foolish man, the man who did not listen to the Lord, who did not obey him, who did not do what Solomon admonished us to do. It was this man whose house fell, whose ruin was great. Both of these men that Jesus is speaking about in this parable, both of them are the, of the redeemed. They were both saved, both covered in the blood. They both heard the word of God, and they both chose. One chose to obey the word of God, and the other did not. You see, 
there's an arrogance that runs deep within us. Even after salvation, we are so often wise in our own estimation that we actually think what applies to the rest of those people? What the Word says? That doesn't apply to me. I'm special. God's okay with me not obeying. Because Jesus loves me, this I know, and all that. But Solomon knew the truth. He knew the truth that Jesus was speaking to us in Matthew 7, which is why he then attention to himself in verses through 12. Verse 7, he begins, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn from and that turning from evil, that's not saying stay away from porn or away from the casinos because there's a much greater, more insidious evil that continues to live in us. And this is the evil that we're told to turn away from. In verse 8, it will be the healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. And here is reward for our obedience and from our turning from evil in our obedience. We will then do what verse 9 tells us, Proverbs 3. Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. And you're thinking, oh, this again. I've tried this get-rich-quick thing that the Bible tells us of. I'm supposed to give a little bit and then I'm going to get a whole lot back. But I tried this once, and it wasn't overflowing with plenty afterwards. The only thing that seemed bursting at the seams in my house was to my to-be-paid bills. And if that's your thinking, I would ask you this. When was the last time you didn't have enough money for food? When was the last time that you had to decide what bridge am I going to sleep under tonight? Or, when was the last time you went looking for a new refrigerator box to live in? You see, truthfully, every one of the members of this congregation, every one of us, all live more opulently and better than Solomon ever did. And the life of Joseph proves that whose you are is a much greater reward than all the money in the world. That in seeing God as the greatest gift ever and living for him, that this is where true opulence and true wealth are found. Again, Solomon goes, in, goes on in Proverbs 3, verse 11. He says, My son, do not reject the discipline of Yahweh or loathe his reproof. For whom Yahweh loves, he reproves, even as a father reproves his son in whom he delights. And if you ever desire to see what I've given over to the Lord, a life that is lived in subjection to the Lord, a life lived in the love and the gratitude of the Lord, what that life looks like, you have no further than to look at the life of Joseph. The day in, day out life of Joseph is a life lesson on what 
trusting in the Lord with all of your heart and not leaning on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. What it means and what it actually looks like. And unbeknownst to Joseph, on that day, in the palace of Pharaoh, on that day, Aslan is on the move. God is on the move. Verses 9 through 13 of Genesis 41. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would bring to remembrance today of my own offense. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain and the bodyguard, both me and the chief uh, baker. And we had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to his interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a Hebrew youth, a slave of the captain of the bodyguard, and we recounted to them our dreams to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. Each one his own interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. And now we know why that dream was given to the cupbearer. And there's speculation on the part of people as to why the cupbearer had forgotten Joseph over this past two years. There's speculation that the revelation of the dreams given a memory of the promise that he had given to Joseph. But more than likely, that's not the case. The cupbearer hadn't forgotten Joseph. He had purposefully not mentioned that in higher event in the prison before now. And it's only now, only now that he might use that incident for his own benefit in providing information to his boss, to a solution, to a problem that no one else seems to be able to, that he brings up that entire prison experience. He must have been thinking, now is the time for shine in the eyes of Pharaoh. I'm going to be giving him much needed information. And the reason that he was given the dream that he was given those years back, the reason that the dream had been fulfilled, and even the reason why he hadn't up until this day ever told Pharaoh, that is all fleshed out in our chapter from today. All of it was God working all things together for the good for the one who loved God and was called according to his purpose. Which then brings about verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph and they rushed him out of the pit and he shaved himself and changed his clothes and he came to Pharaoh. Saints, put your, yourself in the sandals of Joseph. He's going about his day, busily doing his work, when out in the outer realms, he, he hears the officer, his master, talking to the officers of the palace guard. And he hears them talking. And then he hears them asking about me. And then he's told, he's commanded, go bathe yourself, shave yourself, change, and you've got to go with these guys. He's not given a choice. His master is not even given a choice. And don't think for a second that he was given the option of asking why. He wasn't in the position to ask why. He was a Hebrew. He was a Hebrew slave. 
He was a Hebrew slave in Egypt. His person, his people, his personage was of so much less than what the Egyptians saw themselves that he had to be stripped of all of his Hebrewness before he was able to stand in the presence of that king. And again, he couldn't have known why he was being summoned or even where he was being summoned to. He woke up in that morning in the clothes of a slave, probably having a full head of hair, maybe a beard, content with his life, familiar with the routine of his life, and not for one second knowing that his life had already completely changed without him knowing anything about it. But there he is, washed, shaved, clothed as an Egyptian, and he's being taken someplace. And that place where he's being taken wasn't made known to him. They wouldn't have just said, hey, we're going to go take you to the Pharaoh. Um, you, you've got some information. They would not have told him anything. He's still a slave, no matter what clothes he wore. And as to his amazement, they're marching him through the city, marching him to the palace, marching into the palace, and then marching him to stand before Pharaoh. And even at that moment, he had, must have had no idea why he's being summoned, why he's dressed as he was, standing where he was. Why in the world is the king addressing me? What did I do? And this brings us to verses 15 through 32. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, But no one can interpret it. Yet I've heard it said about you that you have that you hear a dream and that you can interpret it. And he must have been thinking, again with the dreams? How often is this thing going to be a thing in my life? First, it's the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker reminding me of the dreams that I had been given. And their dreams, their dreams came to pass quickly. Three days and it was over. My dreams, the dreams that had been given to me, they're never going to come to pass. My dream is over. It ended that morning that my brother sold me into slavery. But at least now he understood why he had been summoned. Because off in his periphery vision, he sees the cupbearer standing there. And now Pharaoh tells him why he's been summoned. But before we address how Joseph responded... We need to step, we, we have to, we have to, if you're going to understand this, you have to step out of our 21st century America way of thinking and back into that time period. You see, at that time period, there were only two social classes. There was no middle class. There was the ruling class, and then there were servants. And above that ruling class, there was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was never addressed unless he was spoken to first. Or unless he spoke to you first, sorry. Pharaoh was never given advice on the fly. Pharaoh was never touched. 
And Pharaoh was never treated as an equal. And it was to this man that Joseph stood before, who had summoned him. This man calls Joseph and says, I've had this dream. Knowing all this, this makes the response by Joseph so much more revealing as he proves those Proverbs 3 verses that I just read. Verse 16, Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, Not in me. God will answer concerning the welfare of Pharaoh. Again, allow Scripture to speak to you here. Don't read this as a story, because this is reality. This is fact. This this is how Joseph responded to the man that he knew could crush him like a worm. The man that he knew could release him from his slavery. To that man, he tells truth. And again, read his response to Pharaoh. Maybe you were thinking, I was taking liberties with Scripture in the accounting to Joseph, biblical truths told by a descendant of Joseph in Proverbs. Maybe you thought I was taking liberties in the truths told to us by Christ. But it's his actions, his absolute assurance in the Lord. That's the only way, the only way that he could have stood there on that day and replied to Pharaoh with absolute assurance in the Lord. Don't forget that this is the same Lord who had given him those dreams all those years ago. It was the same Lord that had sold him into slavery. The same Lord who had kept him in prison all these years. But the same Lord who we're told in chapter 39, four times in that chapter that the Lord was with him. Joseph is standing before Potiphar and he does not puff himself up. He doesn't try to play the prophet here, the wise man to Pharaoh which would have been the logical thing for him to do. Elevate yourself, Joseph. Make yourself seem more valuable to him. That's how you get ahead in life, how you actually are going to get free from this. Instead, Joseph, knowing Romans 8.28, and knowing that it was God who had summoned him on that day, that it was God who had given the dreams to Pharaoh, and for this reason, that it would be God who would reveal to Joseph the meaning of those dreams, that the Lord had given to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh goes on. He spoke the dream to Joseph. He said, In my dream, behold, I was standing in the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the reeds. And behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor, very ugly and lean, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt in regard to ugliness. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows, But they devoured them, and yet they could not be known that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. And then I awoke. Then I saw also in a dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk. And behold, seven ears And before we move on to the explanation by Joseph, there's a subtle point that could be missed in the telling of this dream. You see, Pharaoh saw these dreams as one dream, which is why he kept...
lean and ugly cows years, and the seven lean scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will arise, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land, so that the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very heavy. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is confirmed by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Now there is dangerous in how Joseph responded. Again, Pharaoh was considered a god on the same level as the other gods in that religious system in that country. And yet, to this demigod, it's not one of the Egyptian gods that Joseph is telling Pharaoh that spoke to him through those dreams. It's the only one and true living God, Yahweh, and even though this is truth, Joseph up to this point, he's followed all the social rules at that time period, all the, the norms. He was addressed by Pharaoh, so he replied. He'd been told the dream, so he responded with the interpretation. But what he does next is completely out of line. Truthfully, he doesn't step over the line he jogs in the opposite direction, takes a runner's start, runs full tilt at that line, and jumps way over the line. He gives Pharaoh advice. A slave, a Hebrew slave, giving advice to a living God. A Hebrew slave speaking when not spoken to, telling Pharaoh how best to act. Again, think. Think about this. Joseph, a man who's been a slave now for over a decade, a man who deeply desired to be set free from prison, that he was served in to a man that he knew now. That man that he's standing in front of, Pharaoh, that man that he's standing in front of, that man that he had just given that interpretation of that dream to, the wise and safe thing to do is just stand there with your mouth closed. That man can set you free. But he doesn't. Verses 33 through 36. So now let Pharaoh look for a man understanding and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action and appoint overseers over the land. Let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming. And let them store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority. And let them keep watch over it. And let the food be appointed for the land for, for which the seven years of famine, which will happen in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not be cut off during the famine. And the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. That's what we're told. But in that moment, before Pharaoh spoke, there must have been a gasp of utter amazement in that room when Joseph just continued to talk. This is not done. Pharaoh is not spoken to like this. And those that were his counselors that were standing there who had been telling Pharaoh that his dreams or these dreams are separate, 
who at that moment must have thought, man, that interpretation is whack. Can't be the right interpretation of that dream. They had to be completely beside themselves with the utter audacity of that Hebrew slave and giving advice to Pharaoh. And then, to their amazement, then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man, a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made you know all of this, there was no one understanding and wise as you. And here, here, in this single moment, the dreams that God had given to Joseph some 13 years or more ago, they began to materialize out of thin air. And again, notice who and why Pharaoh attributes the splendor and the grandeur and the authority that he's about to bestow on that young Hebrew slave, that slave to. It's God, but not one of his gods. He didn't say, because Anam, the creator god, made you know this, or Ra, the sun god, or Osiris, the god of justice, or Horus, the sky god, or even Animus, the god of death. He uses the same name that Joseph has used in response to his initial telling of the dream. Elohim. And he says, you shall be from my house. And according to your command of all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold necklace around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zephniah Paniah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as a wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. And just like that, in the twinkling of an eye, the life of Joseph is changed. This wasn't just a promotion, not just a better place to serve his master from. He's no longer a slave to that master. This is nothing short of a miracle. And then the reality of the miracle that has just occurred in the life of Joseph begins. Verses 46 through 49. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and passed through the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food for the, in these seven years which happened in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. And he placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea, until, it stopped, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Finally, after five chapters of pain and suffering, we, like Joseph, we finally get to the happily ever after part of his life. Joseph, for the first time since living in Egypt, is able to travel as he desires. He's able to eat 
when and what he desires. He gets some flashy new clothes, much more flashy and better than that multicolored jacket that he used to have as a kid. Got a palace, and he got a hot wife. He's truly living the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. And this is what we can think the dream was all about. We can read this and think, yes, this is the fulfilling of the dream that I have been dreaming. Wealth, power, pleasure unceasing. Only that's not the life that Joseph lived. Being set before being set free from that prison, Joseph was a slave who served dutifully to his master who had purchased him off the auction block. And when he was elevated to second in command over Egypt, he served dutifully to his master who had purchased him as a slave off the auction block. Verses 50 through 57. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asneath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. And Joseph named the first Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And the second he named Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And we can mistakenly read this section, these verses, and think they prove that Joseph saw the as the fulfilling of the dreams that God had given to him. After all, isn't this why he could forget his troubles and all that happened in his father's household? Isn't this why he could say as he looked around his palace, saw his hot wife, looked out into his garage and saw that all-electric chariot sitting there? He could say, this, these are the things that made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And then the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. So there was famine in all the lands, but in all the Egypt there was bread. Then all the land of Egypt was famished, and the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. Now the famine was over all the face of the land, and Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Now all the earth also came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. No, I think you're right. It couldn't have been the service to his eternal heavenly Father as he saw that he saw as being that which made him fruitful. That can't be why he had his second son, Ephraim. It couldn't have been the furnace of his imprisonment, the day in, day out, toiling in labor for his king. That couldn't have been the reason why he was given a son, and when he was given a son, he named him Manasseh. You're right. God couldn't be the reason that Joseph forgot about all of his troubles in his father's household. It was the stuff. Saints, you need to be aware of something. We all need to be aware of this truth. What we view as riches, this is what has dominion over us. And we seek the riches that has dominion over us. 
Let me say that again to you. What we view as riches, this is what has dominion over us. And we will always seek the riches that have dominion over us. What are you seeking? Joseph knew this to be true. He had been given a dream early on in his life. In fact, he'd been given a couple of dreams, two that are spoken of in chapter 37. And in those two dreams, this is what we think that he lived for, that he hoped for, that it was the rich of the world that he was seeking after. And I would beg to differ with you in this thinking. The name that he gave those two sons, those that were given to him in the land of his slavery, they spoke to the true riches that captivated his life, the riches that had dominion over him. Saints, you may, ne- may never be given lots of material things, but do you not realize that you have already been made the richest person alive. Joseph did. Listen to the truth of Ephesians chapter 1. Just listen as the riches that have already been showered on you are told of. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Saints, this is how you are now before God. You are holy. You are blameless. If you are in Christ, this is who you are now. In love, by predestining us, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our transgression, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound in us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him for the administration of the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven, things on the earth in him. And again, this is the thing that Paul tells us of this great riches that are of Christ in bestowing us to us. He tells us this in Ephesians 2 again. He says, But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Does that matter? 
Do you hear what God has done for us? He has raised us up with him. Raised us, not raising us, not will raise. He has raised us. And he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But you may be thinking, okay, I I get this, David. I understand how much God has poured out his riches for me. I, I, I get this. But my life is hard. My life is sometimes painful, unfulfilling. I just long for the dream to come true. And to that, dear saints, I would tell you, live as Joseph did. And just as he woke that morning in prison of his master Potiphar, As he got out of bed that day, as he brushed his teeth, and he was suddenly ushered into the reality of the dream that he had been given all those years ago. This, too, will be the reality for every one of us. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on the incorruptible and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible puts on incorruptible and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the word that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Corinthians 15, 51-57. Saints, the stuff that dreams are made of in this realm, do you not understand the stuff that so many of these people that are not of Christ, that they think that the dreams in this realm are made of, that stuff is so worthless to our God that our God is going to use that stuff to pave the potholes in heaven. Saints, God has already given you a dream. And that dream is His dream. It's His Son, It's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And his desire is truly your desire as well. To have that dream be your dream. To have that dream be the dream that consumes your every dream and desire. Saints, this is my prayer for you. It's the same prayer I pray for myself. I pray that this dream will be the dream that truly consumes you that has dominion over you. Because this is the only dream that will ever satisfy the longing that the dream has given to you.
to you. But David, it just seems so impossible. And this is why we're getting this last section of Genesis. The dreams of Joseph. The dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. The dreams of Pharaoh. Every one of those dreams were impossible. But none of them were as impossible as the dream that we've already been given. The impossible has already happened in our lives. We have already had the riches of God poured out on us. And we have been adopted back into the family of God. We have been made sons of the Most High God. And one day, the fruition of the impossibility will happen in our lives too. We will be ushered into the waiting arms of the lover of our soul. And it seems impossible. And it is impossible. But thank God that God is the God of the impossible. Let's pray.